0: Radio, a podcast about art artists and soup. My name is Sita Dorda and as you can hear this episode will be in English. And our guest this time is visual artist Juliax. Thank you for being on our show.
1: Thanks for having me. Hello. Juliax, uh
0: you live and work in Amsterdam and in Princeton, New Jersey and in her artwork and research she interweaves different mediums, culture and time periods. So this can take the form of performance, installations, films, comics, uh, art, novels, tapestries, paintings, and more. And for new Niofide's new online scene, Metamorphosis on Future Bodies and Living Identities, Julia X presents us with an excerpt from the story of her forthcoming novel, Transversal Scepters. Transversal Scepters is also a long-running research project of Juliax, in which he uses criminal archives and technologies from the 17th and 21st century in the Netherlands and North America as touchstone and asks the question, what is the future of justice beyond prison? So in your... Fictionalized stories uh, for the online zine Metamorphosis, you introduce us to Pieter Jacobs, also known as uh, Huluk. He is a real historical character that lived in the beginning of the 17th century in Haarlem and was uh, put in one of the first institutional prisons in the world. Can you explain why you chose to write a story about him?
1: Yes. So this character, a real person, Huluk, Stood out to me in the archive because he was part of this um, story of the, one of the first documented prison uprisings ever, potentially. And he uh, was a leader in this, this uprising. And i just found it um, like the fact that he had this nickname and, you know, while, and researching kind of the, the situation that, brought him into the into the Tuchthaus. Uh, they the in the archive it said that he and his friends were li- living a wicked life but it wasn't clear you know what they did or or how so there was a lot of room for me to 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 go into my own fictional world about it and so i was uh, thinking about you know his social conditions the position the society placed him in and perhaps the people who raised him And I open the story with, you know, the fact that he he wasn't completely an innocent person, but then he also was raised like in violence, like he hit his mother every day. But on the other hand, we don't know if she hit him also. Right. So there's this uh, question. Basically, what brings people into prison in general is that people have are hurting. And so that is reflected in different ways. And. Uh, Yeah, so I was curious about, you know, a teenager who gets into trouble. And then also, I don't know if you heard this, but like, there was this uh, coincidence, I found that there was a story in the historical archive, that there was someone buried in the Chote Kerk, who also uh, was hitting his mother in Harlem. So I found that to be kind of a funny coincidence. So I left that in.
0: Oh, -hmm. that is interesting. So, As I understand, there's like, there's a a couple of things that really make him stand out, like that he did an uprising, for example, but also that there's still like a lot of possibility for interpretation that makes it interesting also for a novel to to write about him.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like the archive gives me enough uh, detail, like juiciness to kind of then sculpt my own. A character within the archival skeleton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you come across him? Like, what were you researching that you found Huluk?
1: Well, um, so back in 2016 and 2017, I started researching the the first criminal archives in Harlem with the um, the dramaturg co co producer of the project, Susanna Saunders. We were researching Harlem and we found this article by Peter Spurenberg, who unfortunately now is deceased, but we actually got to meet him. He's a scholar on the history of, of criminal punishment and, um, and also just crime in the Netherlands, but also beyond. He, In his early historical historian days, he wrote an article about the first prisoner of Harlem. So this was this man, Jan Gillesen, who's also in the novel. And, um, so we went into the North Holland archives in Harlem and they had, you know, these transcriptions of the, the first books of the registry. So really the very beginning of recorded, um, recorded crimes <laughs> in Harlem recorded prison life, not just prison, so but that. also just like the trial, like the recorded, ah. yeah, the recorded, uh, crimes, like, uh, what happened in the town and, and who did what and, and most of the time the punishments were like banishment or maybe being beaten. These kinds of uh things. It was generally banishment or expulsion or being like kind of physically punished. And then, you know, this early criminal archive also shows the how they they invented a prison and they they started to use it. So it was um Khan Ghilesen was the first convicted prisoner and but at the same time, there was a group of people put into the Tucht House without any kind of criminal conviction, which Hulik was part of that group. Okay. So we think he was like a teenager who, you know, was thrown in there to kind of find betterness. But the problem with that was that quickly there was no like time limit for their sentence, him and this, this other group of guys. Um, and it was basically based on the, the regent's opinion, whether they were better. So it was quite a uh imbalanced power dynamic for these kids. Yeah. And um yeah, so they quickly I think that was what led them to the uprising is they were forced to work and they never saw they never could see an end in sight.
0: So it it was also really this ambiguity I guess in like how this system should be set up Actually from the from this get go actually.
1: Yeah, at least for these for these young men. For Jan Gilleson it was um there was a sentence that he had. So he had kind of an end point. But what brought the two stories together, Jan Gilleson's story and this group of guys, is that the the young group of guys staged the first uprising mm-hmm. and involved, you know, the whole prison. And then ten days later, Jan Gilleson did a one man uprising and that ended more tragically how did it end well he he stabbed one of the aldermen or one of the scapeonin as a way to like get out and the person didn't die but because it was like much because he was more violent um they decided to execute him in the as an example because I guess they didn't want any more uprisings. So his story has a more of a tragic ending.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Why did you decide to make this story into a novel instead, for example, a film or another form?
1: Well, actually, I am kind of I'm working on the novel because I I realized that there's so much I want to do with the story. And I also I feel like it's helping me put it all together um, but I do want to, I do want to make it into a film later and, a like a, like a series it's, um, it's in process. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I, I started kind of with the idea that I would make a film from the beginning, but what I found quickly with this project was that dealing with history had, you know, it opened up so much. Um, I had to learn about like the history of prisons and I had to learn about like the history of punishment. And, it, and I, you know, and I felt like a sense of responsibility to real people. And then also um, on the other side, you know, with the contemporary issues, especially in the United States with mm-hmm. mass incarceration and that being really connected to racism and like kind of this like new Jim Crow or like new slavery, yeah,
0: yeah, of course,
1: yeah, so it was like huge, it was so huge, and I kept on kept on kind of revealing more and more things I didn't know, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah, I feel like the novel brings me back to I feel like now I have my characters, and i'm and I kind of know where I am, and uh, it's more it's more liquid again. But in the beginning, I was like, oh, you know, it was so exciting, but it was also very huge.
0: I understand completely. Also, what I wanted to ask about, because in the online zine, you presented in audio form, and people can listen to it uh, with subtitles, or also with accompanying drawing. And what I also found really Nice, uh, was the voice actor who tells the story that who has a really strong Dutch accent. Could you maybe explain like some of the choices you made on how to present the excerpt of the story in the online zine?
1: Yeah, so the different options came out of our group discussion with um, with um, all of the people involved with the zine. Uh, we had these discussions with the other artists and the curator where we were... Um, talking about it was the middle of COVID. I mean, it still is, but we were all like in lockdown. And a lot of people were experiencing screen fatigue and screen burnout because everything was happening on the screen. And so I we kind of talked about how we wanted to give our readers or listeners like options for how they wanted to digest the work we made. And also I felt like I was like for me, I was doing – and I still like to do, like, uh, drawing as a kind of soothing... Yeah, yeah. It's, like, self-soothing, as well as, you know, being creative. So I felt like that's kind of nice to give the viewer something relaxing, um, but that also relates to the to the narrative. So, yeah, so I gave them the option of, you know, if they only want to read it, if they want to hear it, if they want to um, uh, listen to it. And, and for um, the choice of the actor... Yeah, Gino uh, van Veenen did a great job with his voice of Hulik, and he actually had not as heavy of a Dutch accent. But I wanted the Dutch accent because I felt like it would be. It's nice to have it, you know, show that it's a story that's from Harlem, from the Netherlands, not like shy away from that.
0: Yeah, I think that works really well. To be honest, just uh also brings it really into this this environment. Of Harlem, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, I was wondering if his accent was Harlem enough, but I. Yeah. But we, uh, I think he tried. It works. <laughs> so I think we
0: all you already have touched on this a bit, but the online Z metamorphosis is about how bodies are inextricably linked to capitalism, and the the story, your story, of the excerpt ends on a cliffhanger as Huluk and his friends enter the prison or Tuchthuis as it was called at that time and are told that their lives will uh, greatly alter. Can you maybe explain how the prison system, the body, metamorphosis and capitalism are
1: connected to each other? Yeah, I will try. It's, um... yeah, it's a big <laughs> it's question. A huge... <laughs> it's... Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Um, basically, the prison system as an institution was invented in North Holland, also in uh, Great Britain. But, you know, I read a book called Pioneers of Penology, which was all about the North Holland prison. So it's really kind of invented in North Holland. And in the beginning, it was seen as a humane form of punishment for social misdeeds, this kind of concept that people could become better if they would work. But a lot of the 17th century misdeeds were based around poverty and drunkenness. So basically, they were criminalizing poor, they were putting poor people in prison. And that's still happening to this day. It's in the U.S. and probably other places here, also in the Netherlands with debt and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they're still, you know, criminalizing poverty. That's one thing. And then in Harlem, the prisoners had to pay for their own incarceration. And so they did that by working for the textile industry, which was booming in Harlem. There were, you know, roads that were just made for dyeing fabric that now are paved over. But um, the whole town was kind of based around the textile industry in the 17th century in Harlem. And so the prison's were made to do the hard work that other people didn't want to do. Like um, men were forced to rasp that would make a pigment that could, that was like this red pigment, but rasping is really hard manual labor. And the women in Amsterdam uh, were made to like spin and knit and do this like very, This labor that, you know, in the idea that they would have a a trade afterwards, but also it became, you know, that they they would do work that other people didn't want to do. And so it quickly became the fact that prisons were, you know, places of isolation and forced labor. So in other words, like slavery.
0: That is a short (laughs) word for it, yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So metamorphosis, the transformation of a creature from one form to another it's interesting to talk about relationship to prison abolition versus prison reform. Like people who um, advocate for prison reform, such as like putting a prison in a different place or um, making prisons smaller or, you know, I don't know. There's lots of different ideas right now, but like uh, different ideas about how to change prison so that it's more humane. Prison abolitionists think that basically you're creating a new monster like you're make you're metamorphosing you're metamorphosizing the same monster into a new creature and and so that's why they are critical of these reform ideas which often have like a money-making element as well basically if we want to have a system that isn't oppressing people and hurting people we have to basically have a completely different system okay something based more around restoring communities and relationships people and like having a system of accountability and and taking responsibility for crimes but having it be more um survivor centered as opposed to like the state being the
0: the one who decides what happens to this person and what punishment they should have. Yeah,
1: having more like a survivor centered uh, system and also like changing the violent policies of the society that make people. Do like that kind of support people entering crime?
0: Where do would you fall in this debate? What interests you in this uh, most?
1: I think the ideal uh, way we will go forward in the future is um, if the both the um, survivor and the perpetrator and their communities have like an array of choices that they can choose from that maybe the society you know also chooses so it's like there's a lot of choice in the system and prison could be the option an option but maybe like the last option yeah yeah you know like the, the the option that is like one of the worst things that you could like if you don't like there's this group I really like in um New York that is practicing restorative justice with um, violent crimes up to not murder or rape, but like up to that. And um, they use prison as this kind of like, so what they do is they do a restorative justice process with the, with the survivor and they create like a system of accountability. And if the perpetrator does not fulfill their, their uh responsibilities to to take you know accountability for their crime then they'll have to go to prison so it kind of creates this like you are given this you have to choose to do this other form which will maybe be harder and take more work you know and like more emotional work like to actually face the crime you did but like the the idea is that the person will not do it again, like won't commit more harm. And then they will avoid prison, which is like going to usually create more harm for both the person and their communities. This is I find very inspiring. Yeah, I understand. But it's
0: also because I've read a lot about these kind of um, uh, accountability processes when it comes to uh, sexual, uh, sexual boundaries that are that are overtaken in some communities, and it it only works when the person that has done something really commits to it and really wants wants to change. Otherwise, it's like it it goes nowhere. Usually,
1: yeah, that is that is the that is true, and that's why I feel like it's like a choice based choice-based system where it's like you choose like you give the person the choice to choose eh, choice to choose yeah <laughs> if they if they're able to choose for it then most likely the rehabilitation will be more successful yeah so prisons right now you're you're deprived of almost any choices in the prison and then you don't get to really Like have this sense of like, oh, I have some control of my life and I actually can make it better or face or like try to change.
0: Yeah, there's this aspect, although it's, I think a lot of the talk around prisons is always about redemption. But there is, I think, not that much space for redemption in, in prisons or redeeming yourself
1: with the way that it is today. I don't think that, like, the, the, you know, this one of the original, like, in the U.S., there was this group of, um, actually, oddly enough, Quakers, you know, who are, like, super peaceful, um, advocated for, like, spaces of silence, like, what is it, solitude, like, uh, when people are put in solitude, isolation, solitary, solitary confinement, which is, which has been studied and is seen as, like, a form of torture. But, you know, for Quakers, they would, like, choose it. And so when you remove choice, it, nothing, it doesn't work. Like, it doesn't, those kinds of things don't work. Like, where you can reflect upon what you did. Like, if you are not given the choice for that, or even the space to, like, uh, have a safe person to talk about it with. Like, a lot of, um, I did a workshop in the Zutphen prison, the male prison, uh, with, with this group talk that is producing my projects in the Netherlands around prisons, as well as um, this uh, social researcher, um, Femke Freck. And, you know, what I noticed, I was doing the creative workshops with these men with, you know, it was like 10% of the prison population. It wasn't a big group, maybe 20% at one point. But, you know, what I saw was that they didn't have a lot of opportunities to use their imagination or to like you know explore empathy I feel like that could help people a lot yeah but yeah I feel like uh for me I don't know I've been reading a lot about choice and I guess that's for me where I feel like what you were saying how it if things don't work if people aren't committed to them like you have to I think there's like different ways people can find rehabilitation
0: yeah I- I think so too. I I agree with you on that point. <laughs> also, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more because you you are already talking about your projects in Zithfen prison, but could you maybe tell a bit more about transversal scepters?
1: Sure. Yeah, transversal scepters is a transmedia project about yeah, this kind of, this kind of research I've been doing with Harlem, but also expanded a bit to other sites and it is a transhistorical investigation into places as well as uh, laws and like the future of justice. And so yeah, I'm writing a novel that um, brings a lot of different characters from different time periods in the Netherlands over time, And it comes from my research, and then it goes into the future. And it's pretty wacky.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So it's actually kind of transhistorical and science-fictional in a way.
1: Yeah. Cool. And I'm going to be doing this fall um, a lot related to it, kind of maybe finishing a big part of it. Uh, I'm doing a, a performance film for the science-fiction festival called Other Futures in November 6th and 7th at the Brache Grond. I don't know how it will be with the new uh, COVID restrictions, but at least it will be a film.
0: Yeah, hopefully it'll be open then, but otherwise maybe there will be an online screen. Yeah, possible. I think
1: they always planned it as hybrid and maybe it'll go even further until the online way. That's about the Amsterdam uh, spin house and the the transformation of the building of the of that Site from being like a, you know, what wasn't Amsterdam, but like a marsh into this being a a convent, then a spin house, a women's prison, then police headquarters for 200 years. And then, and then after World War II, it, it became a university building. So it's a lot about the transformation of like social control that's yeah it is really interesting that history i think and then i have a solo exhibition at the um new dakota and that will be about the future of justice in like 400 years and it will be this um kind of a there will be like this short film as well as this exhibit that explores this idea of of choice and different options for justice
0: oh wow sounds great and it also sounds like like you have a really full agenda coming up
1: yeah i'm gonna work really
0: hard (laughs) (laughs) okay so i'm gonna move on now to our our last question which uh, relates to our soup uh, which we organize each wednesday for people in our building and our neighbors so the question is what is your favorite soup
1: my favorite soup is this soup called gyps- the Gypsy Soup that was um, in um, the Moosewood Cookbook by Molly Katzen? Have you heard of that that cookbook? No, or the, I haven't. Or the restaurant? No, um, I'm not familiar. It was like a. It was like this restaurant in Ithaca, New York, that got famous for its cookbooks, and it had a, like a lot of vegetarian food but also like um molly Katzen like hand wrote all the recipes oh wow and it looks like a zine but it's a cookbook kind of oh it sounds great (laughs) uh, the soup is so good and i was just reading about it before this to like read up on it but it's called gypsy soup because it has this um spanish gypsy flavors i guess it has like sweet potato and paprika and chickpeas and uh, raisins and oh sounds lots of spices sounds delicious yeah i can send a link or in the yeah please
0: do please do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that will include that in our uh, in our show notes thank you for talking uh, to us about your work and your favorite soup so you can find julia's artwork in the online zine metamorphosis at futurebodies.art uh, you can also check out the artworks of Chris Kaur, Azul de Monte, and Lulu Sainsbury there. The online scene was curated by Lisbeth Fiset and designed by Ségolia World. Are there any other places where we can find your work online?
1: <laughs> well, uh, my website is juliax.com, and uh, Transversal Scepters also has a website, transversal-scepters.com. And then uh, I am also the author of a book called Architecture of an Atom, and that can be ordered on bull.com or Amazon, or, at, or you can request it at your local library. And that is like a graphic, a hybrid graphic novel that also is part of tra- a transmedia universe. Nice.
0: This was the 10th episode of New the Radio. Visit our website, subscribe to our newsletter, and social media you can find us on uofida.nl. Uh, to stay informed about our newest episodes, this podcast has been made possible by the team of Uofida. For this episode, the presentation and editing was done by me, Sitsuka Roda. I do the PR and communications together with my colleague, Saskia Berchaf. Our team is further composed of Lisbeth Vise, curator Ichi Fengstra, project coordinator and well, Maris, our administrator. Thanks to Mens for our jingle and until the next time.